is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with your computer or phone. Do not attempt to adjust the signal. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the signal, make it flutter. We can change the focus or to a soft blur, or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly, and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your computer or or phone. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to witness the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the future quake limits. Podcasting to you from the dark and mostly quiet seaside town of Edmonds, Washington. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Tim Kilkenny. And, of course, I am joined this week not by the great Andrew Hoffman, but more by the even greater Dr. Future. Well, did that continue the tradition? It continued the tradition. I like it. You come in, you just take over things. That was more the full version. Yeah. Uh, the people who control are known as the control boys. So the control boys have taken over this. And anybody can go watch the original Outer Limits and know what the heck I'm talking about. <laughs> was that the same intro on the uh, second uh, run through the Outer Limits? Uh, Did they do the same theme song or intro? Uh, you know, well, that's the only one I know. It's the cool song. Yeah. Nice uh, theremin music. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That was the zenith of civilization as we know it. <laughs> as you were saying off air. So um, right away, I just want to get this out there. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Um, you know, you're stepping in. Andrew could not do a show this week. And uh, you and I talked a little bit about it uh, when we found out and, and decided we were going to do a show. And then I didn't tell you the stipulations for the Tuesday night show, which means late night car deal customer comes to the dealership. And sometimes the show is either postponed or canceled because Tuesday yeah. night is the night set aside. So I want to at the I'm, last at the I'm, last nanosecond, I want to publicly the, apologize to you for uh, oh, tying up your whole evening uh, because I didn't tell you the secret rule of the Revelations radio news uh, schedule. They they came like five minutes before we we're ready to start the show. They did with the studio ready. Yeah, well, yeah, it's just a little after midnight here. You know, that's the <laughs> perfect time to do a show. I'm sure <laughs> any kind of guests like to do a show that time. That's when they're really at their maximum cognitive capability. As a re- <laughs> you know what you're saying that, but I actually happen to know that your maximum cognitive capability. May not be after midnight, but it's you're, you're, it's not too diminished at that point. You're a bit of a night out. Yeah, well, so. I would say I'm at about thirty percent. Thirty percent, and I never really get above thirty percent ever <laughs> during the day. <laughs> so at thirty percent, you're probably doing better than I am. I will yeah. say this though. Here's I have an exchange I just dreamed up for us. 
because you are such a gentleman and a scholar, and because I am not joined by my uh, co-host, let's check in with how the book is going, and absolutely not one negative comment from this end. Um, how are things yeah. going with the book and uh, or the books? I'm, I'm asking. Yeah, you're asking too much to not, uh, you know, run me into the ground or you know, <laughs> be, be my thorn in the flesh. Hey, not one, not one sideways comment. I do feel, uh, you know, indebted Itty. to you at this point. Yeah. I do. So please, yeah. what? How, how are we doing? What's going on with the book well, series? And uh, what do you what do you feel like sharing? Uh, let's see. The sixth of the seven book volumes. Uh, I've got a little over 500 pages of it done, uh, as of today and about another 200 to go. And then I've got one more, which is sort of the national Enquirer tell all of current events. And then it's just clean them up, dress them up and, uh, start shipping them out the door. So, uh, you know, everybody's, well, when are you going to, you know, it's like predicting, I've got a stack of three three shelves worth of books I have to read, and I'm a slow reader to try to get through all this kind of information to, to cite. So predicting is a little hard, but based on prior experience, uh, my goal is still by the end of next year to get that get this one finished and that next one, that last one finished, and you know get everything sort of dressed up and zip it out. But you know I talk about it anytime anybody wants to talk about whatever. I'm writing about the Dreyfus affair right now uh, about. Uh, uh, in the history of Christian involvement in holy wars, uh, I'm writing about uh, what happens when you when a Christian community sets a holy war against a single person, and what's the ramifications of it. And that's what the Dreyfus Affair is about from the turn of the century. And uh, it really shows what happens when a church goes fascist. And we might be seeing that in current events right now today. Uh, I think uh, probably in... The, in the last 24 hours has made a big step forward in that regard. Okay. Okay. So, uh, I know you, I, I cheated a bit. I spoke to you last week. I had heard of the Dreyfus affair was kind of, uh, uh, had a cursory knowledge of it, but do you want to kind of let our listeners know just a, a rough synopsis of the Dreyfus affair? Yeah. It, it's an event that if you talk to people, you know, let's say 30 or older that have had a good education, not the ones during the Internet era, you know, video <laughs> games and stuff where nobody knows any history whatsoever. But if you t go outside our country, uh, particularly uh, and people age of 30 or over, they, they learned about the Dreyfus Affair as a global event that oh, impacted gonna, world I, culture. I could research like a millennial. Oh, well, that's oh, okay, Google, what is the Dreyfus Affair? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. But uh, the, the late 1890s is when it occurred in France, when a Jewish officer uh, was suddenly set forward as being a traitor to the government uh, for having given documents, uh, uh, espionage documents to the German enemy. And uh, they railroaded this based upon uh, one single document that a house cleaning lady gave somebody. And sent this guy to Devil's Island, which is the only way we really knew about Devil's Island, which even when I was a kid growing up, Devil's Island we knew about is the, is the worst place on earth ever to go to ever. And uh, so he was sent there. So the world found out that he was going to this literal hellhole uh, off the coast of South America to, to suffer horribly. But 
uh, his brother and some others realized that it was pretty rotten what was going on and that it really didn't uh, make sense with the facts. And they, one person at a time, they had to get people on, involved to say that this guy was uh, an innocent person. And finally, the intellectuals stood up and uh, started defending him. And it basically, the whole society split up into the Dreyfusards, which supported him, and the anti-Dreyfusards. And the anti-Dreyfusards were basically all of the people that were part of institutional authoritative power structures. You had the military was hardcore, anti-Semite, uh, hardcore against this guy. None of them could be trusted for the safety of France. You had the... Uh, the the senior government officials like this, and then you had the church, uh, which was predominantly Catholic in France. They were hardcore with it because they wanted to stand with the old guard, almost more of a monarchist, uh, anti-Republican, anti-progressive uh, environment. Uh, it was very anti-Semitic. And so to protect their culture, they basically were willing to let an innocent man suffer. And there was basically a void in their society of any kind of moral, upright standards. And the void was filled with the secular intellectuals. And the leading one that stepped forward was a, was a, one of the most famous authors of that era, and still today, by the name of Emile Zola. And Emile Zola came forward, and he put his reputation on line and said, this man's innocent. And he wrote probably what is the most famous newspaper article ever in the history of newspapers. It was called Je Accuse, or I Accuse. And uh, he challenged the president of France that there was no real data that confirmed that he was guilty. And in the same time, while they were building this up, and Emile Zola was sued by the president of France and others for defamation. And that trial was a farce, too. Uh, uh, he tried to bring in why he said what he did and the facts of the case, and the court would not allow any of that information in the court trial. And it became sort of a famous thing that the judge just kept saying, that is not allowed, that is not allowed, that is not allowed, where it became a catchphrase. Uh, and so he, he was sued for defamation, and a lot of bad stuff was going to happen to him, and he had to take off an exile to England before they jailed him. But... Uh, but anyway, they, they did discover, uh, and, and there was another investigator who came in afterwards that ruined his career. He was first sent to Africa because he realized that it was, that it was wrong and that it wasn't true. Uh, and then they put him in jail for speaking his mind. And uh, uh, finally, they, they got one guy, and they just couldn't avoid the fact that they discovered that he was the one supplying the documents. And uh, he took off to England. And so he was there in safety in England, and another one who was involved uh, took his own life when they cornered him. And even after that, they had a trial, and uh, the guy who they admit, had admitted uh, himself that he had done it, they exonerated him. And they had another trial for uh, Mr. Dreyfus and found him guilty with no further evidence whatsoever. And so it just about tore the whole country of France in two and the rest of the world and the only real people who came aside from the secularist that said that injustice was being done that came to this Jewish officer's aid was the Muslims of the Middle East the Muslims of the Middle East came to his aid and said that you are executing or you know uh, imprisoning an innocent man 
But the Christian community uh, stuck with the institutional power structures. And so finally there was so much outcry that they cut a deal where they would pardon him. They wouldn't say he wasn't guilty, but they would pardon him just to put it to bed for the sake of the nation. And eventually he was willing to go back into the military and serve and served in World War I. But uh, having said all that, the, the public got so soured once they realized that all these institutions were supporting a, a travesty of justice that institutions like the church lost all of their influence in French society. And after that, they passed a separation of church and state law that took away a lot of the power and control of the church. And it became progressively more fascist until uh, the people who were part of that movement later became uh, – they're offspring part of the operators of the Vichy France regime on behalf of Nazi Germany. So it was a progressive process of the uh, fascistic uh, progression or evolution of the Christian church in France. Wow. So that's just one little chapter. That's one little uh, snippet in the evolution of what happened from the time of the apostles and the book of Acts. Um along all the many holy wars that Christians have had uh, throughout our era. And we're living in an era of another one, and it has many of the hallmarks of many of the ones that I've written about. And so, to be clear, you, the, the Dreyfus Affair, you said the 1880s? 1890s. 1890s. 1894 is when he was first put to trial, and it wasn't resolved till around 1899. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, a lot of times it's better to know church history and uh, even recent history. I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, as they say, we're doomed to repeat it. Right. That's right. And uh, <clears throat> right in the middle of the book series on the Holy War Chronicles that I'm writing, I, I sort of drop back and cover the origins of holy wars. And I go all the way back to the first one that I could find, which was between Cain and Abel, where you had two people with two rival religious systems and one of them seemed to have God's favor and the other one not. And the response to it was not for rightness with God and and to seek uh, uh, a repair of the situation which God offered, but rather to take violence in one's hands out of uh, resentment or whatever. And that has continued nonstop until the days we live in today. Well, I mean, it's we don't do that anymore. Well, I, I guess we do it the right way. We have right, righteous indignation. Well, I mean, when, when we waterboard, we are a Christian nation here, so um, you know, I don't think that we use our our uh, how should I put this our exceptional status mm -hmm. I mean, incorrectly. I think that uh, you know, God. is is David Barton the advisor to your program? Is that? <laughs> You get your background information. He, David Barton may or may not be on the board. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's neither here nor there. Yeah, I I, I have a about an eighty page chapter on the Puritans, and the last half of it is about their activity in America, where they wanted to get away from being persecuted because they weren't part of the official church uh, in play in England. So then they could come here and then start persecuting other people themselves, making an official set up church. an make an official church. Yeah. Right. And, People of my background heritage, like the Baptist and others, uh, found themselves swinging from the gallows uh, from these guys over issue, you know, terrible heresies like believing in believers' baptism and things like that. And um, 
So whether it was the Indians, one was raising holy wars or, or others. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of different beliefs that come to, you know, the Catholics have their history of problems. I've written a lot about the Calvinist and their propensity toward violent acts toward others and setting up theocracies because they believe they're elect and everybody else is not. And if God hates people and sends them to the lake of fire before they're even born, his plans to do it, it's very easy for us to look at people that same way. So theology will influence how we treat other people, plain and simple. Wow. There's something in there to offend everyone. Yeah, I try to. I try to be equal opportunity. <laughs> I hate it when I offend myself. That's when it's really rough. <laughs> but has that has that uh, been a, a fairly regular occurrence? Yeah, this whole process has been a process of me reassessing where my faith lies, because going through church history in this current volume, the last volume I went through the history of Judaism, and and it has its own scandalous component that I've already gotten a lot of heat back from just mentioning a few glimpses of it uh, online. But the, in Christianity, um, when you get past the era of the apostles, you start getting people setting up institutions and middlemen and staff and people carving out turf. And things went south pretty quick. And once Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the empire, um, that was sort of lost. Uh, it was it was a lost cause, and you basically had people out in the hinterlands that were really keeping the true spirit of Christianity available. Then then people started having all of these councils and creeds, and and, and basically they were attempts when you had you know it's like when they they called Parliament for new elections. When you got 51% of the people you call for elections, uh, that's what they would do with these councils. If they got a, a, a critical mass of people, they'd hurry up and call a council and anathematize the people who had slight differences in belief, where they were no longer part of God's church and, and were exiled. And when they get the power of the state, then they could actually physically take actions against them. And guys like Athanasius were anathematized and thrown out of the church, I believe, seven times just in his life. So that's that's how crazy things got, and things really never got better. But, you know, none of that has anything to do with the goodness of Jesus, with the goodness of the message that he taught, or his original followers that were faithful to it. Yeah, it reminds me, you know, a lot of times when uh, we look back at the... Uh the book of acts and just the early apostles um when you go from that to kind of where we are now you'd kind of wonder what in the world happened and one of the things that's kind of refreshing is you look back at the book of acts and they don't have the the baptists and the calvinists and the reformed and the catholics and everything it was just the church of ephesus <laughs> mm-hmm. right well you know even those differences that you mentioned they in and of themselves I don't think are the problem mm-hmm. because I believe I believe on the finer points you get any two Christians together that are that are sincere Bible students and they're going to have inclinations that are different on things that aren't spelled out so clearly. But the fact that the real issue is how do they treat each other? Sure, that's how, an, how do they regard? That's an in-house and, uh, issue. And and I think that yeah, the best example really to me of what it should have been intended was was with Barnabas and Paul. They had a very strong dispute over whether 
John Mark was, was adding value to their missionary efforts. And Paul believed that he had caused some real problems, and Barnabas wanted to give him another try. And it says they had a bitter disagreement, and they even separated. But the fact is, they didn't go to blows. They didn't do harm to each other. They, I don't think they badmouthed each other with other Christians. And what, what it worked out is they had their difference, but they left in peace, and they each took another companion with them. And it sort of doubled the uh, missionary efforts as a, as a byproduct. And we see later, Paul talks about John Mark very fondly, and he warmed up to him. And so time was a great healer of these things because they hadn't declared a holy war and killed each other first. And it's very hard to have bygones beat bygones when you've already killed your opponent. <laughs> and you've had time to think about it. So, you know, there's the positive precedent, we, precedent in, in the scripture there. When people are going to have disagreements. Right. And even people who love God are going to have disagreements and, and think they hear from God or want to. Um, the, the real key in being a good Christian because uh, we, you know, we can always have a little doubt. Do we always have everything just right on doctrine or this or that? We won't find out to the other side. But but the thing is, how do you treat other people? And uh, that's the thing that people people want so bad to be right in what they believe that they forget that it's more important to be right than how you act. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's good advice for. Uh... You know, that's kind of funny. I was thinking about it from a Christian perspective, but also from a non-Christian perspective, that's the, it's the same, you know. It's it's not about uh, uh, who's more right, but how you treat others. Right. Well, you know, for those in your audience who, who don't necessarily buy into the Christian thing, and, you know, they're truth seekers, and they're people you and I would like and appreciate what they contribute to us, you know, they're, they're right to expect to see something more in line with the founder hmm. of the Christian faith. And they just don't get to see it very much. And, <laughs> and you know, they don't see it enough from me. Uh, and I don't have an excuse, you know. I've had that example in front of my face my whole life. And on an extremely rare occasion, by accident, I actually resemble Jesus, the way I do stuff at times. And I don't have a good excuse for not doing it more. But, you know, I, I aspire to that. And uh, I think we have to be honest. If we're going to have any progress... And acting more like Jesus, who I don't think anybody has any problem. I've never met an atheist had a problem with what Jesus uh, thought or did. I, the only people I know who have, to be honest with you, other than Jewish people, of course, do, but uh, are uh, people like Ayn Rand followers. Hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, uh, Pamela Geller, the big uh, anti-Sharia, anti-Muslim person, she's really big into that. That's why her, her blog's called Atlas Shrugged. And she sings the praises of the Ayn Rand Institute. And I started looking at some of the articles of the people she recommended. And they talk about how America needs to get rid of the teachings of Jesus and needs to quit following them, like uh, putting others before yourself and turning the other cheek. And they say those are things that makes America weak, uh, is to put others before yourself. And the whole gospel of selfishness that the Ayn Rand objectivism teaching is, uh, it completely is opposed to the teachings of Jesus. And, you know, I, f I see these articles on Fox News, of all places, uh, where this is talked about. And, uh, you know, so, so we do have these segments that, that, that are few that, that say that they're opposed to the teachings of Christ. But, you know, 
we we have parts of people who are the religious right are also opposed to it. Now that's even more curious. Yeah, I would have to agree with you on that. The uh, the idea that you and I both know that that actually is what makes the country more strong, the putting others before it. Uh, when it's just everybody, every man for themselves, I mean, that is, it's just that actually it does not breed a cohesive, strong structure. It's going to breed, you know, every man for themselves. And it's, you know, it's well, the ultimate, I, right. the, the ultimate destination of a sinless world or a sinful world is, you know, you know, same thing we got now with a lot of death and destruction mm. and stealing and and things like that. If if, it, if everybody looking out for their own interests was the best possible route, um, well, <laughs> in a lot but of ways, I, we're headed towards that. <clears throat> I, yeah, you know, um, Ayn Rand—that's what she, she taught would be a utopian society. And in fact, they had a movie about. Um, her her work, uh, the dramatic work about it, I'm, the name of it is it's, it's a three-part movie series that was in theaters about setting up this utopian of, of just self-centered people, uh, what they what she considered, you know, really the worthy people. But but in contrast to that, the, the way I sort of see the purpose of what Jesus was teaching, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, his other teaching was that he wasn't just picking some random kind of sayings that were meant to belittle people or to make them think nothing of themselves or deny them satisfaction. What he basically said is, is that my father and I are setting up a kingdom of heaven that's meant to be an eternal society. And this will be an eternal society. It's going to last forever. And the only way that it can be preserved for eternity is if it is filled with selfless people because selfishness, is the poison that will destroy any society, any civilization of people. And so the the terms, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings, you can suddenly realize that that it is an, an imperative. It's not just something that, that God got, uh, gee whiz, you know, here's the way I like to run things. It, it, it's, it's an insistence to be able to have an eternal society that works, where one person doesn't take over and conflict with others take advantage of other people, exploit them. It's the only way for it to be preserved. And then from the counter, you see the, the, the world, what we call the world, the people that have more of the Babylon view of exploitation, whether it's like our banking system and world monetary system and others that we see. You, you see that it's basically a Darwinistic, social Darwinistic view of survival of the fittest. And what has happened from that is that they have taken all the bountiful blessings of this earth that it as was created to offer, and they have run it into the ground to where it's quickly losing the benefits due to even its pollution, even the pollution that they push it, the rest of us have to breathe, uh, you know, or, or ingest. Um, and there will come a day when, it, when it's foretold in the future when basically they'll turn this earth into a veritable hell. I mean, it'll just be a physical hell to reside here because of the abuses and the exploitation of this earth and the people of the earth. So, so I really see while, while, while God offers the door open for everybody to be part of this voluntarily society that's to last forever and be sustainable. That's really the word, a sustainable. People who don't want a piece of that, that, that want it just for themselves, are going to have to go stay somewhere 
where that's where other people like them that are all self-serving and looking for themselves so so they don't destroy the eternal society and basically they'll they'll in effect make their own hell because that's what people do who are like that they they turn paradise into hell and so they will create a hell no matter where they go or where they're sent it it will be a hell of suffering of betrayal of hopelessness uh of of lack of comfort of uh of of any kind of goodwill and brotherhood from others. And so we have to decide what we want to be a part of. And the decisions we make every day are part of it. And now we've got these things dealing in a geopolitical issue right now that continue to crescendo. And people who believe in what I'm saying have to decide what what are their private and public decisions and opinions on issues. Are they reflecting which of those two worlds? You know, it's. I think it's important here to uh, to specify too that you know we're talking about real pollution, not just uh, CO two, which is a, a gas that is plentif- well, plentiful here on Earth, um, but actual pollution. You know, a lot of these companies uh, doing you know uh, some you know pretty atrocious things. We're talking about you know plastic in the oceans. We're talking about uh, shell. You know. Their their kind of tough practices in Central America, or uh, the Chinese, you know, nickel manufacturing, and and the real actual, you know, that's one thing that I hate about the eco uh, rights people here in the U.S. is, you know, the environmental movement has been hijacked by this fake CO two deal <laughs> where that's the most important thing and that's the most critical thing when it, it clearly isn't there are actually several other things ahead of it and then uh, what you were mentioning about a, eventually a, a veritable hell on earth it's also mm-hmm. i always find it pretty ironic that uh people in this day and age are leaning more towards a gaia uh type of worship where you're actually worshiping the earth and you know you look at that juxtaposed to you know, what it talks about in Romans 8, where the creation is groaning uh, mm-hmm. and travaileth uh, for uh, God um, and kind of the godlessness that it's been faced with. Uh, it's always been, you know, a little bit ironic to me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as a professing Christian growing up in that environment, I've always been told, you know, you stay away from those tree huggers and that environmental movement. It's just synonymous with Satanism. And I hate to tell people, but while it can go in directions like what you mentioned, where you begin to, to worship something that you're there to take care of. However, you know, if you believe a biblical narrative, mankind was created to tend the garden and to take care of it. And that's, that's why they call it husbandry. We are, in effect, husbands over this creation to take care of it. And, and, you know, not a James Watt dominionism. I don't know if you remember the old Secretary of the Interior under Reagan, who was this this really devout evangelical Christian that just wanted to cut down all the trees he could find and strip mine everything coast to coast. Um, it's it's not exploitation at all. It's it's a caretaker like a forest ranger, and to take care of uh, you know th- this world was created by God to sustain a certain type of lifestyle. That, that he thought was appropriate for, for mankind and that it was, was wholesome 
and probably indigenous groups like the American Indians and others are probably the closest to grasping that. And and Western uh, sophisticated man has developed ways to detach himself from his environment through all these developments. And you know, here myself as an engineer, I can relate to a lot of that. But but the fact is, there's no spiritual glory in any of that. There's nothing we should pat our backs, you know. And I hear conservative talk radio of guys who are you know God fearing people by their profession, and they brag about driving enormous SUVs and and burning as much fuel as possible, and they gloat over it because they can do it. And I would argue it's really not being your brother's keeper. Uh, anytime you take advantage of other people, and most of the third world and others cannot live that lifestyle out of this earth, and you say that you deserve it because you have to be bought, born in the affluent first world, there's no spiritual glory in that whatsoever. Uh, you're, you're not showing any kind of example of that, that Christ would show are one that cares about your brother. Um, and so, you know, I don't see it as a bad word anymore, sustainability or these kind of things. Um, and I and I think while, while people have taken a direction of worshiping the earth or things like that, um, that should not dissuade us at all from setting a godly example about living and enjoying the earth in a way that's responsible, that's considerate of other people, and that appreciates the standard of, of lifestyle and living that uh, our God had intended for us, and not be greedy. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. Um. And I'm probably a hypocrite in all that, too, and I understand that. I still have to work that stuff out. You know, I think putting a curb to our materialism-based culture and our uh, consumer culture that we get from television is a start. Mm-hmm. Well, and to try to divorce ourselves of that. It's funny. I think that that's another thing that the U.S. government has done or government has done maybe worldwide is it's taken the onus off of us because they, you know, they are the ones that call the shots. They are the ones that set up these national parks and they are the ones. So, of course, they're taking care of it. So we don't have to worry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same sort of thing that, you know, they've set up with the welfare state. They've taken the onus right. off of Christians and that now it's the government. So all you really have to do is just earn as much money as possible and pay your taxes. Right. And then those mm-hmm. things will be magically taken yeah. care of. Uh, and then we don't have to think about it. That's uh, we, I think we've what it contract- comes down to. Yeah, is we've in- contracted out virtue, basically. Right. And I think that's what it comes down to is the intellectual laziness of just, mm-hmm. well, you know, the government's doing some tree hugging and they, they, you know, they got these national parks and, you know, everything else is, 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 is open and free game. Um, and then, you know, the same with the, the, uh, welfare. I don't have to worry too much about my, my neighbors or whatnot. I mean, they can go, you know, they can go on food stamps if they have issues. You know, they can, mm-hmm. I can, I contribute. I pay my taxes. They can, they can go on welfare. And I think that one, you know, subtle thing, especially with the welfare, uh, has really taken American Christians out of their element. I mean, that is where, you know, predominantly you're going to see uh, people. And, you know, there's Mm -hmm. been study after study after study done that says that the more religious the person, and I don't even necessarily mean uh, Christian, but the more that someone believes in religion, the more uh, uh, generous and uh, willing to donate they are, whether it be uh, any of the major religions. Uh, so right. with the government kind of taking it from us, it's weird. It's, then it, it becomes a little G, God, you know, because it, it takes care of these things for us. 
Well, it also fills in a void. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show in the Dreyfus Affair how there was a void of virtue that the secular intellectuals filled that void in that society because people of faith weren't willing to do their duty. And I think the same thing is true today. Uh, we have a, such a wealthy land. I know my pastor one time mentioned to me that if the people who were professed to be Christians in America only donated 10% <laughs> of their income, that everyone in the world would have health care. And they would also have sufficient food to eat. So if we can't part a 10% of what we considered our tremendous wealth in this nation, where, where you know even the poorest of the poor in America have cell phones, and many of them have bellies like me, you know, maybe not the best food you eat, but at least it's not an empty belly. When, when we can't get rid of 10% to solve the most basic problem of mankind starving and not having the basics of his life, then we've got bigger problems. Hmm. And you know, this other thing too, and if I could alienate any other remaining Christian listeners that you have, if I could do this, you know, in this political season, we have one candidate who's talking about what I consider the elephant in the room. You know, everybody else's gay marriage is going to bring the end of the world as we know it, or the Muslims are all coming in to slit our throats with scimitars or whatever. But B- Bernie Sanders, that old, that old geezer, old um, activist guy, talks about the enormous dichotomy between the poor and even the middle class in America and this upper, upper, upper percentile and the vast gulf that continues to accelerate, that if it is not remedied, it's going to create revolution in our country, bloody revolution out of desperation of people. And the people who are in that ultra-wealthy range need to stop for a minute and think if they keep exploiting people like the way they are they're going to end up losing it all and it would behoove them to be more generous with the people who can't take care of the basic needs of their family if anything just to try to prevent that revolution that has happened in every other society be it the french revolution be it many others that have occurred when people are so desperate they can't feed their families anymore and i just saw was it yesterday the, the, the new studies that were just published shows that the top 20 people in America, top wealthiest 20 individuals, have more wealth than the bottom half of all Americans. The bottom 150-plus million people of America have less money than just those 20 people. Wow. That is... Wow. Now, this is not a static gap. This is a gap that's widely, widely diverging further and it's feeding on itself it's like compound interest it's and so we're, we're going through a what's becoming a feudalistic kind of phase of our society and basically what you've seen is a middle class just almost totally evaporating you've got people now that are not going to have fixed pensions you know fixed income pensions which those things are virtually unsustainable the way they were set up anyway. So now they've got these uh, defined benefit retirement. Nobody's putting enough money into it because then they might have to hold off buying a new iPhone for the year. And so they want to have all the latest entertainment gadgets so they don't put money in their retirement. So nobody's going to be able to get to retire. 
then there's going to be this uh, gap between new people need to be hired, old people that don't want to get rid of their jobs. And it's going to disappear to the fact where you just basically are going to have drones and serfs for people. And the the other politicians, you know, and particularly the entire one entire political party doesn't even breach this topic. It's not it's not they're they're worried too much about people of different religions or skin colors that uh, we have to fight and address, rather than this looming problem which could just take our society down to its knees. And you can have all the guns in the world, and it will not solve that problem. Hmm. Hmm. But what about Assad? I mean, we got to figure this out. We got to get Assad out of there. Well, you know, I will say this again, just to alienate everybody. I, I appreciate our president, even though I didn't vote for him or, or his challenger. Um, I appreciate his reticence to get us in full blown boots on the ground war. Uh, I think if we would have had his Republican opponent, we would have had World War Four already in Iran and elsewhere. At least that's what he had promised us. And so I, while I appreciate that, I am just befuddled at why he's so adamant on trying to get rid of Assad. And in fact, in a bigger picture, I'm very concerned that in the Arab Springs, the, 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 the few strong, capable, somewhat secular Arab leaders in the, the Arab world that could have stopped ISIS have all been summarily removed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I'd like to have some answers on why American policy was so excited about doing that. And it's not a Democrat-Republican thing. I mean, getting rid of Saddam Hussein was the beginning of this process. In fact, there would not be an ISIS, uh, according to what the experts on TV say, without removing Saddam Hussein because it was his deposed uh, Iraqi generals that supposedly hatched all this in American prisons in Iraq. Now, I, I think that they have assistance from other state sponsors mm-hmm. uh, from the West. And uh, there's I've compiled a lot of evidence that, that seems to support that. And his, history is on the side of that as well, too. And that's but, the, the thing is the liberal left in this country, for some strange reason, as soon as Obama was elected, decided to quit with the anti-war movement, um, which then, you know, he, he was tactical – in yeah. the way that he, uh, you know, smart bombs and limited boots on the ground with uh, Benghazi and the whole Libyan affair, um, as well as, uh, you know, we got the same thing going on in Ukraine, in Kiev. Um, it's a different different animal, but a same type of uh, situation yeah. where I think the general, that and, and the same thing again in Syria, where the general goal is, and Andrew Hoffman has said this at nauseum, destabilization is the goal. It's not that we mm-hmm. go in and then we, 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 we have, we are well meaning and then it's destabilized and then we have to stick around and try and fix the mess. Destabilization is the goal. Well, and, Rub- and that's globalization, yeah. as they say. When you don't want a strong rival to come up and stand up to what your objective is for the region. And, you know, uh, in my first volume of the Holy War Chronicles, I begin by sharing the evidence that's been uncovered about British intelligence really helping found the Muslim Brotherhood mm-hmm. and the, yeah. the, the uh, radical Islamic movement in the Middle East for a very good reason. And it was to counteract the secular independence movements 
in the British colonies in the Middle East that were secular Arab movements. And, and so to, to handle uh, guys like Nasser and others, they uh, supported this uh, extremist radical Islam through a balance of power for that same destabilization. And uh, the Americans were a little late to the game, but they, they did that with the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. And in fact, I have lots of quotations from senior officials in Israel that admit that they founded Hamas for the same reason that they saw in the West. They wanted a uh, Islamist state to counteract the secular PLO to divide and conquer within that movement. And so we can thank our Western leaders for this, uh, but nobody holds anybody accountable. You know, people just write memoirs and they make big fat checks and big speaking engagements. The, the ones that this was done on their their watch and other people, you know, get their limbs blown off and and, uh, you know, come home and flag draped caskets. And these guys get all the accolades. And uh, so, you know, I, this whole thing with ISIS, you know, the real key question is, who are they working for? Because <laughs> you're not going to solve it. You can bomb them all day long. You know, we did that with, with Al-Qaeda. And then we can live happily ever after if we can just keep bombing them, you know. And our policy in the Middle East is is that the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> if we can just keep beating them longer and long enough, they'll cry uncle and then we'll all be happy. And, uh, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. Once you think you've got al-Qaeda under control, well, suddenly some other group pops up like an ISIS and they're even worse, particularly when when the, the uh, fewer dies down and people in the West get distracted by other matters and they got to put it back on the front page. And, and the real question is, in whose interest is it for ISIS to be doing this? I do know that back in the fall of 2013, when this whole civil war with Syria is really just getting started, I have all of these stories. This is before we knew what ISIS would, would come to be, where uh, at these training camps in Jordan and Turkey, it was announced in all the major newspapers that the Americans, the Israelis, the Saudis, and the Turks were all training and arming ISIS. And, you know, even at that time, I said, well, wh wh where's this going? Wh uh, could this bite us like it did with the Taliban and, and Osama bin Laden? And sure enough, you see where we are today. Yeah. That, that's what war, that's what all these intrigues inserting yourself in other people's culture, trying to manipulate them for your own benefit. This is the kind of stuff the CIA uh, cuts their teeth on. This is what they love. Uh, they don't pay the price for it. It's the rest of us that pay the price for it. And uh, we have these wars and things where our great-great-grandchildren will continue to pay old debts for our adventurism that we've done. And so, you know, I'm waiting for Christians to stand up and start talking about the stuff that their founder talked about, about blessed are the peacemakers and turning the other cheek and other things like this that are the last things. You know, if, if you'd like to hear a little story, I got one I, I, I just got uh, in the last day or so from the president of Liberty University, mm. sort of the bastion <laughs> of the religious right and our culture, okay. uh, Jerry Falwell, Jr., uh, has urged students, staff, and faculty at his school to get a concealed uh, weapon permit and to start carrying concealed weapons. 
And he had a message for the Muslims. Uh, this is a you know man of the gospel uh, here to train Christian students in the ways of Jesus. He he says, let's teach them, you know, the Muslims. Let's teach them a lesson if they ever show up here, as he told a crowd of ten thousand on the campus co- community. Um, uh, he said, uh, "I've always thought if more good people carried." concealed carry permits, and we could end those Muslims before they walked in. So Succinct. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's what he's training these, these impressionable young people to go out and serve Jesus. Uh, he, he's giving them what the priorities are. Hmm. 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 So, you know, uh, so some of these schools with follow were, were, you know, they didn't allow black people to go to them when they first started out either. So um, I guess they've come a long way since then. <laughs> um, I pointed out to Andrew uh, roughly a month ago that a month ago, if uh, you would have seen that uh, Paris or uh, Paris, uh, France had been bombing Syria. Um, everyone would have been up in arms, at least those who were paying attention. Maybe the masses mm-hmm. wouldn't even have mind. Uh, but after, uh, you know, a few days, you know, after the, uh, the Paris attacks, the Paris shootings, uh, actually, I believe it was within 48 hours because that happened on Friday the 13th. And, uh, I was at work on a Saturday when people were telling me about splashed across Yahoo and uh, Google and all the big, uh, all Google News and all the big, uh, e- uh, excuse me, websites out there, the high traffic websites. There was uh, front page news: Syria bomb or France bombs Syria. Dropped over twenty bombs on Syria, and mm. they were excited. Everybody at work was yeah. excited. Yeah, they got it. And I think that uh, you know, that's not worrying about too much who did what or how it happened or you know, mm-hmm. what the motivation was, but it's just kind of noticing that. You know, people who may not have even noticed, um, but at worst would have been a little bit up in arms, uh, instead were excited. Well, just dropping bombs on anything for any reason is going to get most Americans happy. Hmm. And on the counter, I can remember when uh, the last election, when they went to the Bible Belt in South Carolina, Mm-hmm. And they had a debate right before the primary, and uh, Ron Paul told all these Bible Belt people there in the audience that that America's foreign policy ought to follow Christ's golden rule, and he was booed summarily and strongly for saying about America following Christ's golden rule. Well, yeah, and these—I mean—that's the same. That's the same political uh, campaign that saw. A bunch of Republican candidates, uh, basically bragging about who was going to bomb Iran the worst. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who's going right. to bomb? Right. Who, bomb, who bomb. could be more more macho? Right. Who, who's got more testosterone to drop something on something? Because you know that makes you a real man. If you can take this, you know weaponry that is so sophisticated over anybody else in the world, and in a budget that's more than ten times greater. Than most of these nations, and greater than the top, what seven or eight nations combined in the world. Right. When you have this overwhelming force, it's like really padding. Uh, let, let's say an MBA, you know, school for going in and beating somebody in their high school gymnasium, 
uh, they've really shown themselves to be real men and real boss when they do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's how we entertain ourselves. That's, that's the entertainment. And that's why when you, even when you go on these prophecy boards and forums on the internet, when anytime bombs start growing, you see these people use these, well, they, they, I guess they call them emojis now. They used to be emoticons, I thought, where you see these little people eating popcorn as if it's entertainment. The, the bombs dropping on these families and people down below has suddenly become a byword for entertaining activity. Because we can sit here in our, in our homes and watch it on cable news and uh, just watch these people get it. Hopefully they'll show some guts and everything else. <clears throat> you know, there's a show I talk about on the show a lot uh, called No Agenda, and uh, they recently sent out an email that uh, newsletter, and it had a lot of artwork from around the world. And basically, you know, I'll have to send a couple of these your way. You might find them interesting, but basically, um, you know, it's uh, some political cartoons of uh, ISIS, you know, uh, carrying out some dastardly deeds on in, in France and it's like a puppet standing in France, but hidden behind the, uh, the wall and reaching around the corner is uncle Sam. And, and mm-hmm. see, that's just kind of common knowledge elsewhere. That's a little right. bit more accepted. Um, but here in the U S um, we've we got to maintain, so we maintain the, we maintain the Disney fantasy here, right? Where we are so starved for real information and just, some you know intellectual rigor in just thinking these things through and mm. uh this last one was of uh, the paris attacks was another uh you know just awe-inspiring in the way that you know very intelligent fairly rational people uh in my own life personal life were saying mm-hmm. you know we're coming to me what are you gonna do you know what do you think we should do what if your wife is next? And it's just, you know, it's hard. It's hard to even to, to know what to say to people, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, um, you know, even though gun violence and overall crime in the United States is actually on the decline right now. Right. We are so connected. Like within two minutes, you and I both could, you know, hear about something that's happening in uh, Venezuela, um, and just because it, once it, it gets out, it's, it's and, and it's hard to forget when uh, we plug our lives into. And I think this is kind of a going down, a, open another can of worms. But the more we plug our lives into what matters digitally, like okay, my Facebook profile really matters, mm-hmm. and my pictures really yeah. matter. Well, then when all that other stuff comes through digitally, it also must matter, right? So now you got. Uh, you know, horrible images of, you know, women hanging from second story balconies to trying to avoid a gunman, you know, um, that are coming through yeah. seconds after it happens. And it's just not going to affect your life more. You know, when you, when you ask what, what are we to do or somebody asks you that, I, you know, I have to pause and reflect and I don't mean to be, be crass with this, but. I think the recent studies that were done have said that so far this year, just this year, there have been 355 mass gun shootings in America, mm-hmm. or at least four more people are shot in the incident itself. Mm-hmm. 355. How many of them would you say involved Muslims? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, you know, like where it was done intentionally as a jihad thing against the infidel. You know, a handful. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not trivializing that handful. Those were real people who died 
tragedy. They should be held to, to justice. It should be addressed. But but when we see a, the outright panic that's going on, particularly people of faith who are supposed to trust in God, <laughs> we we see this handful. We have 355 that, that doesn't get their attention at all. You know? And for those and, who, who aren't panicked... We we have the liberals who will say who will try to to get people panicked about guns. Well, you know, um, there there's a fair debate to be had about what's the nature of what we have and how it's done. But you know, we need to also have an an issue about uh, what the police are doing and other things. Even people call me liberal or whatever. I don't you know I don't care. Um, but we need to get some kind of sense of proportion. Mm-hmm. And you know about what are you going to do to protect your wife? This is the kind of talking that w- goes on in clan rallies. The, cl- the, the clan, clan <laughs> rallies always point. was that the the blacks and the Jews were yeah. coming to rape our white women. Yeah, one that of those, was always that was what got the the good old boys stirred up. One of those Negroes is going to smoke that marijuana, and then they're going to come over to your house, and then what? Right. And that's and that's you know it was the Catholics are going to take over. <laughs> The Irish Catholics and then the, the you know, hey, hey. Catholic Catholic president's going to start just listening to the Pope. It's always this demagoguery, and usually it's about what's going to happen to our women. And the reason why is that we have a natural propensity to want to protect our loved ones. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we tend to lose our heads. And when we lose our heads, it doesn't help their protection at all for the long haul. And it usually means we take actions over our head that means we're not there to take care of our loved ones when we're sitting in the pokey somewhere. So, you know, people need to have a little sense of proportion about what's going around them. You know, it's much, much more likely that your wife, Tim, is going to die in a car accident. Absolutely. I was going to say, out of those 355, you know, quote-unquote mass shootings of four or more, how many, I mean, 355 times four, you're looking at 1,200. There's 40,000 car accident deaths in the United States a year. I mean, are we going to ban cars next? Are you you losing sleep over it? No. Are your hair falling out because you're just thinking about the car accident's going to, I mean, those are very real. People die just as much as they die in shootings. They, they have just the same, but it is the spectacular nature of these events mm-hmm. that gets people to make irrational actions. And that's why, you know, we see Donald Trump today, our demagogue in chief in America, <laughs> who who is making these statements that, you know, it's even shocked certain kinds of people like, do we see where we're going? Mm-hmm. Do we see how far that we're taking this? And you can see how easy you can get into this. And it, it reminds me, I think it's Sinclair Lewis that wrote It Can't Happen Here about this um, this right-wing, you know, religious kind of guy who came in and just swept and set up a dictatorship, you know. He was the guy with the, you know, uh, sw- swinging the flag in one arm and uh, the Bible in the other arm. And, uh, you know, Ron Paul made the mistake of actually mentioning, you know, a quote from this famous author that when fascism comes to America, it will be waving the flag and carrying a Bible. And Mike Huckabee, you know, fell out of his chair. But that's what we really got to fear about. And that these demagogues are what Americans, and particularly Christian people, are gravitating to. It's starting to look a lot like late 20s, early 30s Germany in some of their political leanings and inclinations right now. I can't, I can't, I cannot uh, convince you otherwise. I wouldn't try to. I wish I could. Um, 
But I mean, I think that the the further speaking of Donald Trump, the further along we get, I think that uh, Andrew Hoffman's prediction that uh, he is a, a false flag from the Clintons is uh, more and more right on. Uh, he does seem to be imploding the Republican Party from deep within it, um, which is uh, well fairly that, humorous. It, it was it was corrupt from its very beginning. It's yes. like Je- Jehu taking down the house of Ahab. You know, um, there aren't any good people falling mm-hmm. out of that, in my view. And any time you see one of these these uh, criminal syndicates, we call political party apparatchiks. Anytime you see them go down, it's a good thing. Absolutely, but so Donald Trump know. may just be the thermite to bring this one down. Well, he he may be, and uh, I'm sure it'll pancake right down when it goes down. <laughs> and I'm hoping Carl Rove and the rest of them go down with it. I hope they don't find a, a, a fire truck to jump under when it's coming down, <laughs> because because it does it does need to just totally disappear. And I hope there's a realignment and people start get away from carrying water for political parties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, the, the people I'm most uh, mm-hmm. disappointed with, and then looking in my mirror, disappointed in my history, is those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus that spend most of our time carrying water for an ideology like conservatism, which is really just a form of social Darwinism, conservatism is. It it believes in the survival of the fittest in the economic sphere or in gunboat diplomacy. So they carry water for that or they carry water for a political party or whatever like that. And really they should only have one pail they ought to be carrying around. Gunboat diplomacy. I like it. I like it. Well, you know, that's an old term, but that's basically, uh, if you listen to the Republican debates, that is the uh, only about 98% of the content of it. <laughs> Who has the bigger gun po- to uh, secure diplomacy? And that's Darwinism. That's just basically saying I have the biggest set of tusks in the, in the, you know, the little tribe or, you know, the herd. And uh, might makes right. If I if I'm bigger or stronger, then obviously I have the righteousness and and the only other thing you have is the gold. You know the old golden rule: who has the gold makes the rules. And so we believe by by having that level of sophistication that we have a right to impose. Uh, and it's not even just American values; it is American business values on the rest of the world. It's not like the farmer out in the Midwest or or the factory worker really benefits from what our businesses do when they take over these third world countries. In fact, it's their kids that end up having to fight wars to to help bail out these oil fields and things like this. So, you know, that that's really what's being imported to these people. So, what what's what's the old I don't know if this is true or not, but they always said that the Chinese symbol for crisis is the combination of the symbols for danger and opportunity. And uh, there is a ton of danger going on right now. You know, I'm not even worried so much about America. I'm worried about the reputation of the people who profess to be followers of Jesus in America. Because to me, that's really just going down the crapper, in my view. Pardon my French. And, uh, you know, I want to see something happen where the people who are really holding back a view of of life that can benefit everybody through emulating the good things with Jesus, uh, 
the people who hold that back to get out of the way. And those are the rest of us to get our act together and start really helping other people in our society. Rather than spending our time going and pointing out all of their faults and something that they don't measure up to our culture and therefore they're alienated from us and they're worse than Hitler and they're going to destroy us all. Well, I, I have some good news too. Um, and this is particularly for the prophecy buffs in your audience. Can I share that? Yeah, all, all, all six of them. <laughs> this is a recent story from just the last month. It says in a surprise, this is from Breaking Israel News, mm-hmm. where, where most Christian prophecy buffs read Israel News more than they, except they don't read the liberal Israel News. They just read the, the, like the settler, you know, the ones that burn the, the settlements, they were their news. It says in a surprising ruling, Jerusalem's chief rabbi rules that God must reveal Messiah. <laughs> it, it says that a surprisingly under, this is not a joke, this is real from, from Israel. In a surprisingly underreported story, one of Jerusalem's chief rabbis, Rabbi Shlomo Amar, issued a ruling on Monday that God must bring the Messiah and expedite the ultimate redemption. The ruling was delivered during an all-night spiritual gathering of rabbis from the Chabad-Lubavitch movement, and a recording of the moment was posted to YouTube. In the days preceding the ruling by Amar, close to 6,000 rabbis and Jewish community leaders attended the annual Kanus Hachluchim, and I'm sure I pronounced that perfectly, mm-hmm. the International Conference of the Kabad Lubavitz Emissaries in Brooklyn. The Kabad Lubavitch movement has emissaries who serve Jewish people in 75 countries around the world. Each year they gather in New York for their annual conference. Um, let me skip down here. Um, during the spontaneous gathering, no doubt influenced by the heady success of the conference that just concluded, Rabbi Barel Lazar one of Russia's two chief rabbis. And, and by the way, uh, the reason I found out about this is Lazar is best of friends with Putin. Mm. Putin is really into the Kabad Jews. Another Christian person told me about this mm. uh, at my church. Anyway, Lazar, one of Russia's two chief rabbis, reminded Amar that 25 years ago, the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the last head of Kabad Lubavitch, you know, he was the guy who they said was going to resurrect from the dead, mm-hmm. and they called him Messiah. They said that he believed was Messiah. Who passed away in 94, had asked Imar to issue a Sak Din, a formal rabbinic ruling, on the issue of the redemption of the Jewish people. 25 years later, at this gathering, early morning hours, November 9, 2015, Imar agreed that it was time had come to rule that God must hasten the arrival of Messiah. In the presence of dozens of colleagues and holding the hands of two men sitting closest to him, Amar announced, We hereby rule according to the demand of the audience. We see the plaintiff but can't see the defendant. That God Almighty speedily bring an end and reveal the Moshiach or Messiah in front of our eyes in actuality. Uh, and uh, the crowd began singing, We want Moshiach now. We don't want to wait. These words came from a song that Lubavitch children are taught to sing at an early age. It says, uh, you know, they asked the uh, Breaking Israel News, asked how can they make this ruling that obligates God? And they asked a senior Kabbad rabbi who said, all that comes to mind is the axiom in Kazal, or this Jewish sages, that it is not in heaven. Once the Torah was given, the earthly court makes the rulings, and the heavenly court is, as it were, bound by them. 
And that's completely consistent with my research from my last volume of writing, where they actually teach in the Talmud that if a voice from heaven, from God, from heaven, says something has to be a certain way, they will reprimand him and say it's not, because the majority of the rabbis on the rabbinic council say it has to be another way, and God must comply with the will of rabbinic council. So, you can expect to see the Messiah pretty soon, I'm presuming. <laughs> because God, God got the memo, and he's, he's been served. <laughs> it's like, it's so like, I'm it's, hope- like, it's like one of those guys who comes to serve you, uh, you know, uh, legal papers to your house. So like, right, you know, that's right. They walk up kind of casually, like, "Are you God?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, here you go. You've been served. Right. <laughs> right. That's exactly what's happened to God. He, he was just casually weeding weeding the garden in the front lawn and. Somebody mm-hmm. served him his papers. Right. And he and he, he dared not ignore that uh, command. So. <laughs> so that ought to wrap things up pretty soon, I'm guessing. Yeah, sounds like uh, they, we, we, we're, we're down to, day, to, to days, not weeks. I mean, it's coming. They just got tired of waiting. You know, that part about, like, accepting Jesus, that mm-hmm. was not acceptable to try to hasten it. They mm-hmm. had to have some other things, so. They're gonna get get another bar kokba. I'm afraid. So speaking of Israel, you know, I think that uh, a lot of, I think I spoke about this a little bit when we were talking last week, um, uh, just you and I, and that was just that uh, with ISIS, Israel's very missing from the picture. Isn't that like the goal of all radical ex- Muslim extremists to wipe Israel off the face of the map? As they love to wrongly attribute. Are uh, the uh, uh, Ahmadinejad? Um, you mean that it doesn't come up in their conversation? You mean of one of their main agendas? Yeah, and that ISIS doesn't appear in Jerusalem trying to bomb people or mm-hmm. uh, or doing anything over there. Now I said that to uh, somebody else, and the response was, "Well, Hamas is already there, so why would they?" Um, but I, I, I just don't. Well. Know. As I mentioned before, it was already published in the major newspapers that Israel was part of the group training them. They were training them in Turkey and in Jordan. I understand. So I'm, I'm not. If they are, if they are, if they're already getting public assistance from Israel, mm-hmm. then there's not much reason in them attacking them. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you know, and it's interesting the bedfellows that we do have over there in uh, in uh, the Middle East. Uh, for instance, I got a story here that uh, talks about uh, human rights, and this is from uh, the Hurriyet Daily News. talks about uh, child marriages make up a th- almost a third of all the marriages in Turkey. So mm-hmm. A large percentage of the marriages in Turkey between 15 and 19 years old. Um, and a lot of the reasons that... Uh, well, I'm I'm from Kentucky originally, okay? So you're getting close here. My my parents waited to advanced age. They were both 18 when they got married. So, you know, that that's really sort of traditional uh for life for people like that. Now, you know, you get in Appalachia 13. Sure. It's more common. And when you think about in ancient Israel, the uh in in that region, mm-hmm. you know, somebody was thirteen, you were a man. Two things. You know? First off, in ancient Israel or even in uh 
Egypt, um, people weren't living to be, well, I guess in ancient Israel, maybe they were, but, uh, the life expectancy long ago was not that long. So marrying and everything early was more common. And mm-hmm. second thing, uh, these child marriages are not always to other children. It seems that the most of the women are 15 and 19. Most right. of the men are much older. Um, which, which, if you were going to do that and be an older man like that and marry somebody ridiculously younger, mm-hmm. maybe what they're trying to do is posture themselves to be the leading Republican presidential candidate. You've lost because me. You, I have no because idea. you can you can lead in the polls in the Republican if you marry a uh, you know a young trophy wife young thing. In fact, the evangelicals will embrace you, Donald Trump. Uh, if you do that, we're we talking about we'll Donald, Donald Trump. Con- connect the dots. <laughs> I've never done that before. If if the shoe fits, well, you know Donald Trump's favorite verse in the Bible, right? Uh, I don't think he knows. No. I don't guess I would know. <laughs> you don't but know. No, because no, wait. He doesn't no, know no, do not trash him. The the religious, the Christian leaders have met him and looked him in the eye and say that he is the Cyrus that God has raised up to deliver America and that they see a, <laughs> a true man of God there. And he has already said that he was a good Christian because he said he eats the little cracker. How... How do you and that spell, was his definition. How do you spell Cyrus for this uh, wonderful story? What, C-Y-R-U-S? Okay, all right, all right. So it's not serious or anything like that? No, 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 no. Okay. No, they, they, uh, they're, they're already developing a mythology about him, mm. uh, the Christian leaders, because they're hoping maybe he'll do something for them in exchange. Let me guess. He had a walk on the beach with Billy Graham's son. Oh wait! Now that now you're getting ridiculous. Nobody would swallow that. <laughs> it was actually Billy Graham, although Billy Graham can't remember that it actually happened. <laughs> well, and uh, George H. W. Bush, when asked if he was a a Christian, responded, uh, uh, "Well, I've been uh, reborn." Well, there you go. Well, you know, there's a lot he can't remember. George H.W. can't remember why he was in Dallas on the day that uh, <laughs> no. Kennedy was shot. Yeah, he's the only person, he's that the only person in was. the world that can't remember where he was or what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, he's <laughs> just sort of forgetful. You know, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. It's a malady. hits a lot of the CIA guys. We forget what we were doing on the night of whatever. Watergate break in, can't remember either. <laughs> Ron Contra, yeah, that's another one. I just draw a blank. I don't know. I can't remember where I was. Yeah. Um, Must be all that eavesdropping equipment and the radiation. <laughs> well, you know, we were going to do a bit of a Tomorrow's Tremors show, but it's, you know, we've we've gone on and, and, and done a show without Tomorrow's Tremors, so... Hey, hey, I read two articles. Hey, you did. You did. I I read two. I I delivered. I referenced at least one, so we're good with that. Um, And then I did a lot of uh, grumpy pontificating and ranting. (laughs) I did a lot of sarcastic laughing and uh, um, cynical commenting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, but it, I mean, to be honest with you, that, that's this show. So it, it hopefully is. we hopefully we alienated the prerequisite number of people, <laughs> particularly myself. I've I've wreaked my havoc, thrown some rocks at windows, and I'll move on. <laughs> 
Well, um, you always have a friend here in me, and uh, also. Oh, I thought you. I thought you meant in uh, in your partner there. I thought that's who we were referring to. The well, friend I that always I have a friend. You, mean, you have a friend uh, in uh, Andrew Hoffman as well. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that view too, Tim. Thank you for uh, letting me be here. I do feel like Groucho Marx, though, coming on this show. You know, he said he would never join any club that would have him as a member. <laughs> didn't so didn't I, want to sully himself. Right. So I don't know. I don't know what that means about this show. If they got a, you know, I, and I'm sure you probably called that lady who said that the monster energy drink was a sign of the Antichrist and asked her to be your guest <laughs> host first. There's a gal. Oh yeah, is yeah. this new? Because I know about the. Uh, I, there was yeah. there was a video that went out. See, I I, I was hit. Adam Adam saying continues to follow her. You know, comes okay. spirit normal. Okay. He always keeps an eye on what she's doing next. She's out of Tennessee here, and mm-hmm. it started with a video. I think you found on YouTube where she shows that Monster Energy Drink has the six 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 of the devil in it, and right. that the Satanist run Monster Energy Drink. Mm-hmm. And then and then she started getting silly after that. Oh, and then it started to get a little crazy. Yeah, but but yeah, she anywhere she's like Waldo. She just pops up everywhere where there's there's somebody like doing a Westboro Baptist Church kind of you know uh, <laughs> protest. She's there. She didn't miss out on it. Usually gets roughed up a little bit. So you know, it's, might want might want to have her second time. You have this. It's, it's funny you you get into those type of conspiracies and. You, I had my fill. I, I I went into the into the crazy conspiracy theory of the the ne- the Nephilim babies and the the uh, the lizard people and and all this stuff. And I came out the other side, and uh, I'm not a not a day, not a not a one iota smarter. Or uh, have I done one better thing to love my neighbor by uh, by figuring yeah. all that stuff out? Well, if people want to know, and I'll tell them the secret right now. If they want to know who's really going to destroy American Christianity, and they're worried about the persecution and the destruction of Christianity, the people who are going to destroy American Christianity are our prominent national American Christian leaders. They're the ones who are going to do more to destroy Christianity than anything else. And the persecution that they perceive that come will be mostly self-inflicted, and it will be brought because of all of the uh, incredibly crass and and uh, insensitive, unthinking, unsympathetic, unmerciful comments that constantly come from their lips from mainstream Christian media. So if you want to wonder why people really just don't care for, for some of our Christian friends, it's because they see that kind of trash and they project it on us. And when we defend them, then we're equally guilty with it. Yeah, I've got a new coworker that uh, thinks that all religion is garbage and, and that uh, it's done more damage to the world than it's done good. Um, I didn't find myself in a position to argue that point. I just nodded my head in understanding at least mm-hmm. about yeah. the general idea of what he was talking about. Well, had I not been raised in a Christian environment that had a few good role models mm-hmm. for me in that regard. Guys like Robert Hyde, people mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You know, if I didn't have that and my father and others like that, I would I would agree. I'd probably be right where they were right now. Mm. I, I would be and, and the fact is if I want to have a positive impact in my world, I have to acknowledge that. I can't sweep that under the rug. I've got to acknowledge that there are some legitimate beefs mm. that deserve answers 
And if I can't fix them, at least what I can do is distance myself mm-hmm. fr- from the from the people who are the troublemakers. Oof, man, I'm getting getting uh, tingly, warm fuzzies from that one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That is my goal in life, my friend. Yeah. Well, keep letting your light shine before men. Well, I'll do I'll do my best. Um, I know that you will continue to do your best, brother Andrew, and continue to do his best. Well, I just crawled back in my hole. I'm basically a shut in here in the cabin, sort of, sort of Ted Kaczynski lifestyle <laughs> that I live. And I just, I, I write my manifestos and rants about society with pyro at my side. Yeah, the unintended consequences of technology. Pretty crazy, pretty crazy manifesto we wrote. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and. uh I hope you have a few listeners afterwards. Well, it's been truly a pleasure to have you on here, as usual. And uh, anybody who uh, is offended by this show, I guess, can just join the rest of the people that are offended by this show. Although I would have to say that a majority of the people who listen to the show on a regular basis would not be offended by anything we talked about. And mm-hmm. uh, we we did a uh, – I think I told you a little bit about this, but we did a uh, – like sort of, uh, should we stop the show, you know, moment uh, a couple months ago and, uh, came to the conclusion after a bunch of people responded that, uh, we were mostly a, a, uh, uh, a ministry that was edifying to, uh, Christian believers who, uh, kind of said, Hey, yeah. there's not enough Christian anarchists out there, enough peace loving Christians out there. Um, you know, you guys got to keep doing your show. And so we said, okay, that must be what our main uh, focus is. And it wasn't long after that we got a deluge of uh, other emails from people saying, hey, 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 if you're keeping score, I'm not a Christian, but I find you guys Mm -hmm. to be entertaining. So that was was kind of encouraging to both of us. And, you know, our our tough tough schedules aside, we're going to continue to try to to do these shows. That's because y'all are the real deal, and y'all aren't snowing people. And saying a bunch of foolishness that, you know, nobody could justify. And for those of your listeners out there who are in that category, I just want to tell you, I respect you. I salute you. I appreciate all true seekers out there. And, um, you know, I, I do think that, that the Jesus, as he originally was, sort of had the right thing going that I don't find anybody has a problem with. The problem is finding people who actually practice it. Hmm. And uh, all we can do is is do what we do ourselves because there's no better role model out there. Who am I going to find out that's a better role model than him? I still haven't found it yet. So, um, you know, I just got to sort of get myself in line. And there's a lot that needs to be fixed in me. But I want to salute the people out there who are truth seekers and don't listen to all that foolish mainstream media, whatever it is, and rather come here and listen to some real people talk about real things. Make mistakes sometimes, but at least they admit it, unlike mainstream media. And don't have billionaires coming on talking through some kind of uh, uh, public interest group that comes on this show to espouse the interest of some billionaire under the guise of telling them information. That's that was the best native ad that we've ever paid for here. Well, send me a check, <laughs> and I can be I can be bought and corrupted. <laughs> I've been waiting for that for <laughs> 10 years. Can I tell people since I pro- it is uh 1:30 in the morning here? 
Yes, absolutely. And, and I, 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 please, uh, people, when you think about what I said in the show, attribute it to delirium. And uh, I, I probably I've not had sleep, so just be be patient with me. But if they would like to hear more nonsense from me, they're welcome to come over to my blog. Uh, that I, you know, every time I feel like I got to get a rant off my chest, I'll put something on there. Uh, it's at two spies report dot wordpress dot com. It's like the two spies, uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb, who had the minority report in the people of faith. And sometimes, even though it's a minority view, it doesn't mean it's not necessarily right. So there's a lot of those minority views there. Two spies report dot wordpress dot com. And also, if you want to see me and just see what a handsome guy I am, you can look at that documentary that was just out with Chris Pinto called Dark Clouds Over Elberton, true story of the Georgia Gadstones that finally reveals the real identity of R.C. Christian, the Georgia Gadstones. And it's a, a really good romp. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And since the last time we spoke, you've been on uh, the Corbett Report, which was uh, a pleasant yeah. surprise. It was always yeah. it's always nice to uh, hear my two favorite podcasters together in the same in right. the same podcast, so uh, and, and I told James Corbett that I name dropped you all, and I said that you and Andrew were my my two favorite white separatists. <laughs> so I hope you appreciate that. Certain, <laughs> certainly do. Um, <laughs> so uh, the book's coming out at the end of the next year. Two Spies Report is available all the time, and uh, Dark Clouds wow. Over Elberton is also available uh, at Films, I believe, .com. Yeah. Anything else you want to tell us? Any any words of wisdom you have for us or any final thoughts yeah. you want to leave us with? I haven't had any words of wisdom yet, so why, why get started now? I hope, if James Corbett is listening, I, I'd just like to tell him, don't you have something more important to listen to? But if you are out there, it's good to hear from you. And all of your listeners out there, Thanks for your patience with me writing my uh, manifesto, and uh, it's coming along real well. It's had a huge effect on me. Probably you can tell in some of my discussion on a show like this that I've been doing a lot of thinking. And uh, my thinking is getting simpler, I think, and I think that's a good thing. And uh, I want to encourage everybody out there to just tune out. Anybody who's famous, who's got money behind them, by default, just get rid of those people. Uh, because you're not going to hear truth from those sources. And uh, hang out at shows like this. Do your own thinking. Do your own uh, praying. Do your own uh, meditating and deliberating. And uh, find you some good close friends whose opinions you respect. And you'll be a lot farther along to figuring stuff out. So that's my two cents. And uh, my blessings go on you, Tim, and Andrew as well, too. And now I'm I'm glad you all are still doing this show. I can't think of an, a similar show that people can get trustworthy information. So, yeah, it's a, that's a heavy crown you wear there, buddy. <laughs> well, we will continue to do our best. I, I've said that about a million times. Uh, we will continue to serve and, and do this podcast as long as the Lord wills. Um, hopefully... Without any further ado, I think this is uh, this is uh, going to conclude our, our our conversation this evening. Thank you again. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for staying up to the wee hours of the morning. Uh, how hopefully soon you can blow out that evening candle and uh, go on to bed. All right. 
A copy of this podcast, as well as links to each story covered, are available at revelationsradionews.com. To contact Andrew and Tim, or to support Revelations Radio News, please visit revelationsradionews.com and click on the Contact tab or Support tab. Please check out the other podcasts at revelationsradionetwork.com, and thank you for your support of this podcast. Don't you say-